Moskowitz here. Welcome to the program. And uh, my guest this segment is Emily Conrad. She's an author and a reporter. She's written a book called The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. Emily, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me, Charles, and for giving me a platform to share what I believe to be one of the most underreported issues, uh, I think, in this electoral in this election cycle. I agree. And uh, to get to make things simple, um, I want to start by just doing a quick thumbnail sketch, if you will, of what the Electoral College is and how it became about how it came about. Okay, for sure. So one of the things that surprised me most whenever I was writing my book is that the Electoral College, when we hear about it in news media, it's often referred to as this monolithic organization. Um, in reality, it's made up of 538 individuals uh, chosen um, within their states. And um, in my book, one of the things that I particularly did was that I interviewed um, eight electors called faithless electors. And what this is, uh, what a faithless elector is, is that it is an elector who is pledged to vote for their candidate, um, a Republican Party candidate or a Democratic Party candidate. And a faithless elector is one who chooses not to do that. So um, in 2016, you had faithless electors on both sides of the aisle. Um, but of course, the Electoral College was uh, enshrined in our Constitution. But it's had several changes since then, which I outline in the book. Okay, and the, the, the Electoral College is a part of the Constitution, and it was basically the put together as a means to elect a president of the United States and to give each state uh, an amount, an, a, a proportionate amount of power in making that election so that it would not be strictly based on a popular vote, which would exclude the smaller states. Um, for example, back then, I mean, New York and Massachusetts, I think, and maybe Virginia were the big states, and the smaller states, in order to join the union, like Delaware, like uh, Georgia, uh, like Connecticut, Rhode Island, they wanted to make sure that they had an equal share in electing the president. And that the concept, so they would elect electors, and the electors would basically get together a week or so after the election, and they would be uh, appointed by their states, I think based on population, or I'm not sure how and that they would convene in their state capitals and they would elect a president based upon the popular vote in their respective states. Now, uh, today, of course, there's a movement to get rid of the Electoral College, but the population, the, the situation today is even more acute than it was back then because if you get rid of the Electoral College, then the president can simply run from New York City or from Los Angeles or Chicago and not even have to go to the smaller states at all, like Wyoming or Alaska, or uh, you know, or, or um, you know, Rhode Island, because they would have no power at all. It basically would put all the power in the hands of the mass populations of the biggest cities in this country, and and people from the smaller states, the the, the rural areas, they would have no power over who becomes president. So it's an important tool to ensure that a national election reflects the whole country in all of its diversity, both in terms of its regional diversity, its ethnic diversity, and in, in every other way, so that every part of the country can get an equal representation when choosing a president of the United States. But what you're saying, Emily, and you did some research and you actually interviewed people who are the so-called faithless electors, is that you have electors on the different states 
who were not carrying out the mandates of their states. They were not voting based on who was elected by their states. And let's not forget the presidential election is a, basically 50 elections. It's 50 state elections. How can that be? I mean, weren't they behaving if at best unethically, if not outright illegally? Well, and, and this is one of the things that one of the reasons why I found um, this topic so interesting. So to answer your question, um, well, there was there were two Supreme Court cases that were argued in May and the Supreme Court made the decision in July. Uh, these were Chafello versus Washington and Baca versus Colorado. Um, Chafello, uh, Brett Chafello, he's one of the electors I interviewed in my book. And uh, Michael Baca, he is uh, in Colorado. He was also another elector who I interviewed. Um, one of the things is that they decided not to vote. They, these were both Democratic electors, and they decided not to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, they both have every single faithless elector who I spoke with, and I spoke with both Republican and Democratic faithless electors. Each one of them had their own individual um, reasons for not voting for their, um, for their party's respective candidate. And I found this actually extremely interesting. And what it really gets down to, and um, basically, is what the Constitution says about the roles of electors. Um, whenever the Electoral College was envisioned by the founders, um, there were no political parties at that point in time. Um, I delve into some of that, and particularly the 12th Amendment of the Constitution was supposed to um, fix some of this. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, you had the 1824 contention election in which John Quincy Adams won over um, Andrew Jackson, which I also cover in the book. Um, were, these, were these electors doing something illegal? Um, actually, basically, what, that's what the Supreme Court decisions were trying to figure out. Um, what the Supreme Court eventually decided was that, was that state laws that bind electors to vote for the popular vote of the state are not unconstitutional. That is what the Supreme Court decided. Um, that being said, a huge amount of states, well, not a huge amount, but a, a significant amount of states do not have binding elector laws. So in these states, electors can technically vote from who, who, for whomever they want to. And while some people might say it's unethical, they might say, oh, well, the Supreme Court provided me and the Constitution gives me the right to vote for whomever I want. Um, and even so, whenever you take a look in leading up to 2020, um, not even the states that do have binding elector laws, um, the cost of noncompliance is not necessarily substantial. In some places, you just have a fine. Um, and in a few places, you can be jailed, um, but that, I mean, or you can even be removed. Um, but that is, a, a, I think, maybe about 15 states at this point in time. So I think this is extremely important leading up to the election. Everybody talks about November, but, um, you know, after November, we have 300, uh, 538 individuals who, you know, technically, arguably become the most powerful people in the world. And to be honest, most people don't even know who they are. Well, yeah. I mean, how do they get appointed to be electors in a state? I mean, how do you are you like a local office holder or what, what, what's the deal with that? Well, one of the things about the Electoral College is that um, it is remarkably decentralized. Um, and one of the things that I tried to explore in my book was um, to explore this decentralization. So every single elector whom I spoke with has a different path that they became an elector. 
Um, you have, I spoke with an elector out of Georgia. He actually backed down rather than, uh, he stepped down from his post rather than uh, vote faithlessly, even though he publicly considered a faithless vote. He was chosen by a state committee, um, the Republican state leadership. Um, the rest of the electors whom I spoke with out of Texas, Washington, um, Hawaii, they were all actually voted democratically within, their, within a caucus or within a convention. Um, one of the, the arguments that you hear against the Electoral College a great deal is that the Electoral College is not democratic. Mm -hmm. And technically that's not the case because in many states, electors are chosen democratically. Are they elected to the position or are they chosen? Yes, by, they're uh, elected by their peers within the caucus or the convention. Right, but they're um, not elected so I, by the, on a ballot by the people of the state. They're, they're just elected. And, and then later they're elected on the uh, by the, uh, um, yes, exactly. However, not every state has their na the names of their electors on the ballot. Mm -hmm. So many people don't realize that they're actually voting for an elector in November, not for the president. And, and it seems like each state has its own unique methodology in terms of electors, and it goes a lot to tradition and, and whatnot. Um, but it does seem to me to be unconscionable for an elector to not vote for the candidate that the majority of the people in the state voted for, because after all, who are they to do that? It's very undemocratic. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the, the people decided with their ballots. They went to the polls. They, they voted for X, Y, or Z. It seems to me that the state should, the, the elector should should support that, and not just operate on personal whim or opinion. You know, that's up to the voter. Well, I'll give an example. So, um, one of the the, the, the electors who um, he's very he's a very strong progressive out of Hawaii, and I talked with him, and um, he was voted in by what he calls Bernie Kratz. Um, and so whenever Bernie Sanders lost uh, the Democratic nomination, he said, oh, well, um, the election was stolen. The, nom the Democratic nomination was stolen. Right. Seventy percent of Hawaii Democrats supported Bernie Sanders. So whenever Hillary lost, he, saw, he, uh, he didn't see any ethical problems with, with casting his electoral college vote for Bernie Sanders. Um, you, you saw that on that side. Um, on the Republican side, for example, you saw um, you saw people who um, in Texas, for example, and this was another Republican elector who decided to step down rather than vote faithlessly. Um, a very strong uh, Christian, conservative Christian, and he said, just based off of my personal beliefs, I cannot cast my vote for Donald Trump. And he didn't go much into that, but you know, but that was his his personal decision. So what you see on both sides is that, and these are all, of course, are people who also understood. Many electors that I spoke with, when they became electors, they did not realize the right the realize the rights and responsibilities that come with being an elector. When they finally when they finally realized it, or when it dawned on them that they are one of the 538 votes that count, then then you started to see them really grapple with. I have this power, and if, especially if they're elected by their peers to that position, what do they do with that? And I try to explore mm -hmm. that in my book. That's amazing. I mean, it's kind of almost like, not exactly like, but it's a bit like a, like a jury. You know, they, they can nullify an election if they think that it was not right. I mean, a jury has the power looking at a trial to nullify laws if they think those laws are unjust. Um, and it's an incredible power that people don't realize they have when they're on a jury. And in fact, the judge will often try to discourage people from knowing 
this fact, but the fact is that jury nullification has played a major role in American history. It was a jury that nullified the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which uh, Congress passed a law that allowed for uh, agents to go to the North and, and abduct former slaves who had escaped from slavery in the South. That was nullified by juries in the North who said, no, you can't do that. So I suppose in a way the Electoral College has that same function. They could say, no, we don't want to recognize this candidate and we're, no, we're going to nullify this candidate by supporting another. Now, in the case of, of, of Hawaii, um, the general election, I, I suppose that Bernie Sanders in the general election got no votes at all because he wasn't running as a third party candidate, which would mean that they were voting for a non-candidate, somebody that was not at that time being presented as a presidential candidate. So I would think that that's problematic. And with regard to the, the elector who refused to vote for Donald Trump, I would think that if they have some kind of conscientious objection, then they can resign their post and let someone else step in and cast the vote, I guess. Well, and, and that's what happened. Um, two of the Republican electors who I, I, I interviewed, they did step down um, for different reasons, of course. Um, and then I also interviewed one who did not step down and instead voted for Ron Paul. Um, who, again, it was, uh, wasn't it was running very for interesting. Yeah, I mean, who wasn't running for president. Right. The, the challenge that exists, I think, in understanding the Electoral College, and it's, it's really, um, for example, whenever we start talking about, oh, is it unconscionable for electors to not vote for who won their state's popular vote? Well, I mean, even saying that, we're saying the state's popular vote. What a lot of people say is that even by binding electors to the state's popular vote, that this is just one of the steps in, in having national popular vote. Um, and it's one of the things that I feel like was very much, um, it hasn't really been explored that much. Um, the Electoral College is, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book. It's extreme, It's an extremely complex topic, and the more you dig, the more complex it becomes. Um, the answers aren't so cut and dry as no. people who say, I support the Electoral College or I don't support the Electoral College. It's a, it's a much more complex topic. It is. And I think you're, you're, you're onto something when you say that uh, to force electors to vote based on the popular vote in the state, that could lead to a national popular vote, which is completely contradictory to the whole concept of an Electoral College. And that there actually are governors who have signed um, declarations, including the governor of California, I understand, to tie their elections to the national popular vote as opposed to supporting the right of their state to decide who the president is going to be. And I think that's a very undemocratic trend, seems to me. Um, but um, there, after the election of, of, of 2016, there was a major effort launched on the part, not necessarily of the Democratic Party, but of people who were Democratic operatives to try to convince electors to not vote for Trump, even though he had won in certain states, particularly in some of the close states like Wisconsin and Michigan, and to try to say, vote for Hillary, we can still do this. Now, I mean, I think that that is actually quite subversive for either side to try to do that. You know, if you have... Yes. Yeah. Um, there were, I mean, it, it's really fascinating. You take a look and uh, so many of the Republican electors said that they were completely bombarded after this last election. I can say 100% of Republican electors were lobbied to try to change their vote. 
after um, the November election of 2016. You had a lot of different movements going on. Um, you had something called the Hamilton electors as well, and I delve into the Hamilton electors in my book. And these were Democratic electors who said, you know, we believe that Donald Trump is dangerous for the country and we're going to do everything that we can to try to get somebody else elected. That being said, the Hamilton electors went about it in a very interesting way. Instead of saying, let's vote for Hillary, they said, let's vote for a Republican, uh, for a Republican that we like. So you had uh, Michael Baca who attempted to vote for uh, John Kasich before he was removed by the Colorado um, Secretary of State. And then um, there's a group out of Washington State who voted for uh, Colin Powell. Um, so it was, it was, it was quite interesting. Um, the question is how, and this is the major question, could it have worked? Um, because the way the Electoral College works is that you have to get a majority of 270 to win. Well, if 37 Republican electors would have switched their vote, it would have denied Trump the majority to win. What this would have done is that it would have sent it into the House of Representatives in a contingent election a la 1824. Right, where John, where John Quincy Adams was basically voted in as, as part of a deal in the House of Representatives. Um, and I think that that's a big hurdle to reach 37 electors and convince them not to vote for the candidate that their state had, had elected. Um, well, at the same time, I've heard from multiple sources that they, that, that they were even thinking that they could have up to 50 Republicans defect at some point. So even though it does seem like it's a large number, and some people say, oh, it would have been impossible, I, you know, from what I've heard, it, it, um, they, you know, they, they, they could were, have done it. Yeah. they could have done it. They could have done it. And I think that in this particular election, given the sort of the street actions of various radical groups like Antifa and BLM and, you know, the burning and the looting and they, they're showing up at people's houses, it could be a very dangerous time for electors. Now, do we, are the electors, do they maintain a certain anonymity? Do we know who they are? I mean, I would. We I know that, who they are. So and this is, public. and, and. And, and many of the electors actually did go into hiding. Um, well, I, I don't know how many. I know that a couple went into hiding. Uh, they went to safe houses after death threats um, yeah. in the last election. Um, I've, I discussed that a lot. I, every single, almost every single elector I talked with received some sort of death threat or another. Now, some of them said, oh, I wasn't that, that scared about it. Um, you had one of the electors who had somebody follow him home in his car, and he was very scared, you know, follow him in another car, um, and he went to a safe house afterwards. So it's, uh, yeah, there, 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 there isn't really an anonymity, especially now with the internet. You can find out a lot of information about people as well, and there really isn't the concept or the cognizance of that these, these people are extremely important, and we need to probably provide some level of protection um, because yeah. it, it is, you know, it, we say that maybe it's their safety. But I mean, we could also say, uh, for me, it's an, uh, potentially the Electoral College could be an issue of national security. People talked about collusion and, and interference so much in the last election. Well, mm -hmm. the reality is, is that there are 538 electors. I mean, you could, you know, blackmail or, or anything along these yeah. lines. Now, or it sounds up. like it belongs in a political thriller, but it Not could at all. No, I mean, not at all. We now, it's now come out that um, this Democratic group, Act Blue, has received 
upwards of $200 million from unknown sources. I mean, that could be foreign sources. It could be meddling in the election. It could be collusion even, heaven forfend. And that, uh, you know, people could be corrupted. People could be bought. People could be intimidated. They, As you say, they could be blackmailed. They could be investigated. They might find some skeleton in their closet and they could threaten them to, to release it unless they vote a certain way. I mean, that's not at all. I mean, that's the real ugly side of politics. You know, that's the darker side of politics going all the way back in history. That's not unusual. So, uh, you know, the, that combined with the radical groups who are showing up at people's houses with, with, with uh, you know, with, with, with like, like they do in the Frankenstein movie, you know, with, ready to bring them out with, with burning sticks. Uh, you know, this is a very dangerous time for, for electors. Yeah, I think we need to be cognizant of that and to try to ask them to maybe take precautions in advance and be prepared for what could be a very, very nasty election. And, and they're going to be right in the middle of it. Well, and and, and, not, and it's not just, um, I would say that it, it could be a dangerous time for electors on both sides. Oh, yeah, um, no some, A lot of the, the electors that, that I, um, you know, one of the, you know, a lot of the electors, even on the, the Democratic electors, whenever they said we're not going to vote for, for Clinton, they also received all of these death threats. Oh, um, no, no question. Whenever it's you have, sides. you know, these people and they go against the grain, it's, it's you know, it, it's really a fascinating, it, it's fascinating to me that these people, all of these people, regardless of which party they belong to, were willing to give up their political reputations. And that was one of the, re that, that's what drew me to this topic to begin with. I thought, what is going on where you have people on the progressive side, people on the conservative side, and they each decide to do something very similar. Um, and at first, you know, I was worried about, you know, interference and, you know, blackmail. I can tell you based off of my, my, my conversations with each of these eight, eight electors I interviewed, I believe that they they were doing what they thought to be the, the best for the for the country based off of their their personal beliefs. That but that being said, you look ahead to 2020, you can't necessarily count on that, um, especially no. when there's not much oversight over what the electoral college is. That's right, and there's a lot of complications this time around with mail-in ballots and claims of voter fraud and and all the rest. So, Emily Conrad, where did you, how did you feel at the end of your research and as you published your book about the Electoral College and about the future of the Electoral College? Well, my, my background is in international relations. Um, that's what I did my master's in. And um, really, I, um, I was interested in this because I think to myself, this could potentially be a national security issue with a bad faith foreign or domestic actor. Um, I still feel that way. Um, I do believe that what we have here is because there is a lack of public understanding of what exists, um, I do believe that this is an issue that we need to be looking at. Regardless of what one believes about the Electoral College, this is an institution that it has been around and that I think it gets thrown out so much every four years that people think they understand what it is. And then they don't see the the, the complexities or the gaping holes where you could have a national security issue um, arise. Um, I think that there needs to be public understanding of what is the Electoral College, what are electors, what are the roles of electors. We need to have a, a conversation and a debate about these topics. 
because if we don't, then then you know we're we're just kind of at the mercy of the people who build the uh, who create the talking points. Right. Well, very interesting. All right, Emily Conrad, let my viewers and listeners know where they could get your book. Okay. Well, so this is my book right here. Yep. It's the Faithless, the Untold Story of the Electoral College. Um, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or through a local independent bookseller on Bookshop. Great. All right, Emily. Listen, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Charles. You bet. Talk to you soon.